We're continuing on in the uh, Heidelberg Catechism up to Lord's Day 2, and so there are three questions and answers there that I'm going to read the questions and ask that you would respond with me in unison to the answers. First, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us in this summary in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. And then if you would turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. It's not a book we look at too often, probably because it's, it's sort of encapsulates the history of Israel uh, from coming in relationship with God, but especially the books of Samuel and Kings. And if you're having trouble finding it, you'll find it after Samuel and Kings in your Bible. But Chronicles is written a little later than these books. It's kind of encompassing the history of Israel and Judah, and it's helping them to reflect on what's happened, but also what God promises will happen. And it, it takes place around the time of the exile and also the return from exile. And, and through it all, it's, it's kind of a retelling of Israel's, of Samuel and Kings in particular, but of Israel's history, sort of in a read, Reader's Digest version, uh, where, it, where it shortens the stories and it, uh, it directs them toward the main point of the author. And the main point of the author seems to be God can overcome our history and bring something new out of it. And what's going to be new out of it is the new David. The David, the new king from Israel that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 6, the Messiah, and that, that Messiah is going to be brought about, and he's going to be a new David. It's going to be a new day and age for the people of, of Israel and Judah as, as the new David now takes over. But, of course, it also tells the story of a lot of bad kings through the years. And, and especially in Chronicles, when you have things shortened up, you can see them. They come almost rapid fire at you. How many bad kings, particularly in Israel, but even in Judah, all of the different bad kings that had come. And yet, every so often, you see a glimmer of God's grace as he brings about a good king. And a good king would often lead reform and revival in the land. And that's the story we're going to look at this evening of a good king. His name is Josiah. He has, his father had just been assassinated, King Ammon, uh, at a, quite a young age. And so Josiah was put on the throne when he was eight years old. Now there's this group that keeps being referred to in Chronicles called the people of the land. Am it's in the Hebrew. And it, it appears to be a group of people that were especially trying to guard the throne of Israel and, and of Judah. And in this case, um, trying to guard uh, Josiah as he was uh, just a young boy thrust into this leadership position and, and kind of move him, coach him, 
toward being a good king. And, and so part of that, early on in Josiah's life yet, he starts some reforms in Israel he, or in Judah. He, he starts throwing, out, uh, throwing down uh, altars to Baal and Asherah poles and the like. And he's already started this. And then part of his reform is that he's going to um, renew, redo some of the buildings, particularly the temple buildings that were told in, in chapter 34, verse 11, the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. So the temple had been allowed to fall into ruin. That's, that's where they were at spiritually, a physical picture of where they were at spiritually. And uh, when they started renovating the temple, uh, then something happened that even prodded Josiah's reform movement even more than that. And we find that starting in verse 14. So 2 Chronicles 34, verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord, and he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They've paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because of those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They've not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Hilkiah and those the king sent with him went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, the keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. She said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent, this, who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that's been read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the word you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declared the Lord. Now I'll gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and with all his soul to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. 
Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites, and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God as long as he lived. They did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. We'll conclude our reading at that point. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, as we come before you, we come with the, the question, who says I'm a sinner? And we realize very quickly uh, that we, we see our sin in your word. Help us to know what to do with that and how to uh, live according to your word. Uh, help us to get beyond knowing our misery to knowing uh, the, the solution for our problem in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the catechism asks, how do you come to know your misery? And it answers, the law of God tells me. How do you come to know your misery? What a question. I have another more worldly answer to that question. I have two mortal enemies living in my home. A scale and a mirror. In a constant battle with weight, it's easy to push the scale into the corner and forget about it. But I keep running across mirrors everywhere. They remind me of a bulging belly and need to lose weight. So I have a love-hate relationship with mirrors. How do I come to know my misery? My mirror tells me. Well, I have a similar relationship with the Bible at times. Some parts I love because they bring comfort and inspiration, but other parts mirror my sinfulness, and I dislike what I see. And yet, without the Bible as a mirror, I'm unable to see how I appear before God and make a change. So the law, the Bible, is both negative and positive in relation to our sin. Well, Judah, under King Josiah, discovered both the negative and positive sides of the Bible, as we read in this story. It served as a mirror that reflected their serious sin, but also allowed them to repent and correct themselves. Now, if you read Chronicles, the story of Chronicles is that of mostly evil kings, reflecting or sometimes causing the evil in Judah throughout the years. And eventually their sin would lead to exile. So what was their problem? Well, first they had lost their Bible. The Torah or, or Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. In a day before they had printing presses and everyone had a Bible in their own homes, one of the few Bibles would be found in the temple and it had been collecting dust in the temple for years. As a result, the kings had no standard by which to rule God's people. It would be kind of like our Supreme Court without the Constitution. So they had no way to decide what was right or wrong. As a result, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That constant refrain from, from the book of Judges is, was true of this day and age as well. They sinned religiously. Without the Bible as a mirror, sometimes they didn't even recognize their sin. And so their sinfulness went unchecked. It was sort of like a snowball effect. Not worshiping God, left the temple in repair, 
The temple repair made it easier for them to turn to alternative worship, idols of Baal, Asherah poles, high places. Their worship uh, denigrated to the sacrifice of firstborn sons and various other sins, intermarriage with unbelievers, adultery, war, and murder. It was all downhill to the exile. And then one day, Hilkiah the priest stumbled over a book while they were cleaning the temple, and this book changed the way of life for the people of Judah. This book of the law, or Torah, written by Moses, was the story of their history with God, but more importantly, a story of his covenant with them and his covenantal requirements. When King Josiah read it, he tore his robe in mourning. Through it, he immediately recognized the sin of Judah and feared God's punishment. And this would be confirmed later by the prophetess Huldah. They hadn't kept God's word for years, broken every command in the book, and were terrified at God's judgment. But they didn't stop there, feeling they were simply doomed. They used God's word for a second important purpose, a guide for living. Now I'm going to just do an aside here, something I tell my catechism students till they get sick of hearing it and something you've probably heard from me as well. But when the Heidelberg Catechism was set up, uh, the Bible appears in the first section of the catechism. That's what we're dealing with today. The law of God tells us our sinfulness. It mirrors our sinfulness. And so the, the, the law is, is a way that we understand we are sinners. Then there's a second section that deals with salvation. And most other world religions, if they had something similar to the Heidelberg Catechism, would have put their law in that middle section. Salvation. How to be saved. You do this and you do that and you do this and you do that and you find, follow all the laws that your God has given you and then he'll accept you if you do enough. But of course Heidelberg Catechism doesn't put it there. Because it's all by the grace of Jesus Christ that we are saved and not by anything we do. But then it appears a third time in the third sec or a second time in the third section. And that third section is about our gratitude or our service to God. And there we find the Ten Commandments in the Heidelberg Catechism. Because now, once we are saved by Jesus Christ, once the law has pointed out our sinfulness and we come to Christ for forgiveness. Now we use the Bible as a guide for holy living. Live the way that God wants us to. And that's what Josiah was doing. He called Judah to repent of their sin. He had the Bible read to the community. They renewed their covenant with God and pledged themselves to keep it. And this restored order to Judah so that we're told as long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord. The Bible became a guide for their lives. It mirrored their sins, but as importantly, it moved them to change for the good. Well, the same should be true for us. The Catechism asks, how do we know our sin? The Bible tells us. From Genesis to Revelation, the message of the Bible is, love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself. Every law, every story, every parable, every event shows us how to do that. Now, maybe we're not in as bad a shape as Judah, but all of us have some spiritual flab. In fact, we might, in fact, we're in bad enough shape, dead in our sins, Paul says, that Christ had to die for us. 
Our sin was weighty enough that we couldn't handle it ourselves. So Christ took the penalty for our sins. Once he did, legally we are right with God. Yet, the pollution of sin remains. And that might cause some problems when or if we read our Bibles. Because it will mirror some things we don't like. But remember, it's not the mirror's fault. What will we do when we read the Bible and it tells us things we'd rather not do or it tells us things we'd like to do but the Bible says we shouldn't do? When it says it's not only a sin to kill our neighbor but it also a sin to fail to help our neighbor in time of need. When it tells us it's not only a sin to lie but a sin to fail to witness to them about Christ the truth. Will we take offense or will we act positively? Undoubtedly, the Bible presents a negative reflection on our lives. Now, we could find that mirror in other places. The media reminds us of our society's daily sins. Yet, if we look to the media or our society as a mirror, well, then it wouldn't be hard to say, well, I'm not so bad compared with others. But the Bible tells us differently about ourselves. Society increasingly lives without God's standard for life. Each person becomes a law to himself or herself. If it feels good, do it. Increasingly, society sees no absolute or moral standards. But lest we get self-righteous about that, Christians can fall into the same trap. Indifference to the Bible. Is it collecting dust in our homes? The further we distance ourselves from God's word, the easier it is to justify our sin or our failure to do God's will. And pretty soon we'll have no standard for living either. Or perhaps we'll simply substitute the world's standards. And that, can go, that sinfulness then can go unchecked. The results are very visible in our world. Societal lack of standards has gradually and sometimes quickly devolved into sexual laxity, the breakdown of the family, uh, aborting babies under the guise of individual freedom, prejudice showing up in ethnic cleansing, or simple failure to love our neighbor. Maybe less noticeable in our lives, a white lie snowballs into a habitual lying. One shady business deal becomes a pattern for doing business. An innocent flirtation leads to adultery. One sip or puff turns into a lifetime addiction. Sin can be devastating if left unchecked, as they found out in the time of the flood. Well, the Bible, God's revealed will, can uncover sin before it snowballs. As a mirror, it shows us how we stand before God. It might often show us our sinfulness, our failure to love God and neighbor. It can also show, show us the need to change, repent, be forgiven. And that leads to positive correction which is also a way that we need to use Scripture. Now, one thing we have to be careful about when talking about the law is that we must never take the law without the gospel. We must never take the law without the gospel. There's a positive side to this mirror. If we believe in Jesus Christ, when we look into God's mirror of eternity, we see ourselves surprisingly robed with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus took our punishment, fulfilled God's demands. We are off the hook legally for our sin. We won't face God's eternal judgment, but our promised salvation 
eternal life and relationship with God. So how then do we use the Bible as Christians? Well, it's still helpful to show our daily sinfulness, but more importantly, it shows where to go from there, to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, to the Holy Spirit for renewal. In Jesus Christ, we are not doomed to failure like the sinful person we see in the mirror, but we are given power to change. The Bible gives us a blueprint for change, the image of Jesus Christ. And it serves as a guide for living Christ-like lives, not out of obligation, not to somehow gain God's favor, but simply from joy and gratitude for having received God's favor. We all use mirrors to make improvements in our appearance. We should use the Bible to make improvements in our outer lifestyles and our inner attitudes to see where we're wrong, ask forgiveness, and strive to live in God's way. Are we using God's mirror today? Or are we ignoring it because it makes us look bad? Strive to to live in God's way, using the, the Bible to make improvements in our lifestyles and inner attitudes. Take a peek once in the mirror of God's Word. You might be surprised at what you find there. You'll find that God's Word is not our enemy, but simply a mirror through which we see our sins covered over by God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your Word. As David earlier said in Psalm 119, it is a, is a light to our path. It guides us in the way to live, but it also corrects us when we need correction. And so help us to uh, be able to look in your word and, and take that challenge that we get from it as well. Now we pray, Lord, that that word might, be, might not get lost sitting in dust in an ancient temple in ruins, but it might be an active part of our lives and that we might seek to put it into, into practice as well, knowing that we can only do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, to help us in this coming week to live out God's word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, be reminded of, of the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ as we sing together How Firm a Foundation, number 427, verses 1 through 5. And it's a, a song that reminds us that our foundation is not built on our goodness. It's not built on, on what we do. It's built only on Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we sing the five stanzas. <laughs>